Welcome to Climate Watch, a podcast that delves deep into the pressing issues of climate change. I'm Gao Junya. The United Nations Climate Conference, COP28, has been running over halfway through its packed agenda. What are some of the highlighted outcomes thus far? The most interesting is that 120 plus countries have promised to triple their renewable energy in their energy mix. How far have we come to energy transition? Fossil fuels will be phased out. They will not be phased out by the defeat of fossil fuels. They will be phased out by the victory of renewable powers. And what is China's role in the global green drive? I think that the most important role of China is not speaking at the political events, but just the practice of Chinese society and business and government leading the charge. In today's program, we'll find out what achievements have been made so far at COP28 and what challenges are still looming ahead of us. As we cross midpoint of COP28, notable achievements have been made, including the adoption of the Loss and Damage Fund, a vital support for developing countries in their climate endeavors. The conference is also a hub for collective efforts to accelerate energy transition. To dive deeper into COP28 highlights and discuss ways to bolster global climate actions, we are joined once again by Eric Solheim, former UN Environment Executive Director and Under Secretary General of the United Nations. Okay, thank you, Eric, for joining us again. And in our previous conversation, you emphasized the importance of addressing loss and damage in climate talks. And one of the outcomes of COP28 is the adaptation of a loss and damage fund to transfer finances to countries hit hardest by the climate crisis. Tell us the significance of this fund. How will it function? What measures are in place to ensure it's more than just, let's say, empty promises? Well, first of all, it's a very important principle to establish that those nations who have caused the climate problem, basically Europe and North America and a few others, also should compensate those nations which have not caused the problem. And Africa has not at all caused the climate uh, problem. So it's agreed that the fund will be set up, but of course there will be limited money in this fund. So I think it's very important to channel the money to where the need is biggest. That is to the least developed countries, which have huge difficulties getting money from the normal financial ways. And it's to the climate adaptation issues, which cannot easily be financed by private sector. I mean, if you look to wind or solar energy, that's not not the cheapest energy anywhere in the world. And it can be financed by normal private investment and the international banks can finance it. But it's much more difficult to finance, say, prevention against extreme weather or measures to prevent droughts or flooding, which are public sector expenditure. So the climate adaptation and the least developed countries should benefit from this fund. And for sure, we should try to avoid making it as bureaucratic and and non-performing as some of the many other global institutions which don't really work well, even if the intentions may be good. Yeah, you're right. Now the promises are there. Now let's just we hope that someone can walk the talk, right? So um, COP28 has been undergoing for over one week now. You've been there in Dubai witnessing what's happening there at the front seat. And from the outcomes, 
Which ones stand out to you personally as positive steps forward? Could you share some examples that have earned your approval? Maybe the most interesting is that 120 plus countries have promised to triple the renewable energy in their energy mix. That's a very, very important development and it's one of the developments which are likely to happen because solar and wind energy are not the cheapest in the world and hydropower is also cheap. So uh, they can compete with coal and oil and gas everywhere. Look, still these 120 countries are producing at the moment less renewable energy than China alone. And so China is the total dominant indispensable power when it comes to renewable energies. But it's still very promising and very important that so many countries are now deciding that they will move fast. And when you triple the renewable investment, the price will come down. Anything which goes to scale becomes cheaper. So it means that when you start to triple, you will see a self-sustaining direction. Price will come down to be even cheaper, even easier, and you will see a lot more of it. So indeed, this is very promising for a future, um, which is fueled by solar and wind and hydropower. Yeah, it's interesting that, Eric, you mentioned energy transition, because it is definitely, in terms of green development, it is integral part of it. And uh, while I was browsing through the news, I heard, you know, some Japanese protesters, actually, they're there in Dubai, protesting their governments, they're moving so slow in terms of energy transition. Uh, I'd like to ask you this question. Is there a defined timeline for the phase out of fossil fuels? What challenges are being faced in this transition? Do you believe the goals are realistically achievable? I have a very clear view of this. I mean, fossil fuels will be phased out, but they will not be phased out by governments deciding that now we will phase out fossil fuels. They will not be phased out by the defeat of fossil fuels. They will be phased out by the victory of renewable powers. <laughs> because then you save money, improve people's lives, improve the health, improve the care of Mother Earth. Everything is benefiting from going from coal and oil and gas into the renewables. Most people will do it all over the world. And it's the cheapest energy now everywhere. So yes, fossil fuel will be phased out, but by the victory of solar and wind and other renewables. I mean, last night I was at the Longi night here in Dubai. Longi is now the biggest solar company in the world, headquarters in, uh, in Xi'an in, in China. And they just set world record in the energy intensity of the solar panels. So, yes, we will see a phasing out thanks to the victory of the renewables. Let's say, because you've been engaged in climate issues and environment protection for years, can you share with us mm -hmm. some of the key points you presented at the discussions in Dubai? I think I've made two key points. One is to underline the geopolitical shift which is very visible here. Uh, look, 10 years ago, the European Union was the leading group of the world when it comes to the environment. I mean, nearly all practices was best in the European Union. And when people asked me in Beijing or Delhi or Jakarta, where should I go to get the best practice for the environment? I would always say, please go to Brussels or go to Berlin or Paris because the European Union is in the lead. But now... China is the leader on every green technology and also on most green practices. India is coming very, very fast on the environment and so are nations like, say, Vietnam or Indonesia and many other Asian nations. So it's an enormous geopolitical shift where Asia is now leading. True, many Europeans and Americans haven't realized it yet, but 
that's their folly, and they will understand. And the other big shift is the role of business. Ten years ago, there were hardly any businesses at the climate meetings. They were much smaller. Now, 100,000 people have come together in Dubai. Many of them, maybe most of them, from business. And these are businesses who understand that they need to change and that business can play a key role in driving the innovation and scale because governments cannot do the innovations and that can only happen in business. And also government cannot scale renewables or all other green technologies Only that can happen in business. So I underlining these two main shifts, the geopolitical shift from the West to Asia and the shift from negotiations to the political economy and business. Yeah, you've mentioned this transition from West to Asia. And uh, we know that China actually is a huge power in terms of new energy development. I know that you've noticed China's increasing involvement to global climate efforts. Could you comment on some of the initiatives or proposals China presented at COP28? How significant are they to global climate actions, do you think? I think that the most important role of China is not uh, speaking at the political events, but just the practice of Chinese society and business and government leading the charge. I mean, China is now 60% plus solar, wind, hydropower, electric batteries, electric cars, everything. And Chinese companies are in the lead. I mean, Long is the biggest solar company in the world. CITL, the biggest electric battery company. BYD is the biggest company when it comes to, to electric cars. Goldwind is the biggest wind company. And you can go on and go on. And many of these companies are here. That is new. I mean, Chinese business in the past did not participate in these events. And they show by example and technology their way forward. Added, of course, China is a weighty voice in the political discussions, uh, supporting or leading the developing world and underlining that we need a, a fair transition, which is also benefiting the poor nations of the world. Mm-hmm. COP28 takes place in what is already known to be the hottest year ever recorded in human history. And the climate crisis wreaks unprecedented havoc on human life and livelihoods around the world. What measures do you think governments should take to tackle the crisis? And what could individuals do to contribute to climate actions? Governments need to understand that this is the big challenge of the 21st century, but it also creates an enormous opportunities. And every nation will go green, create more jobs, more prosperity. And that's also what's captured in President Xi Jinping's slogan, green is gold. By going green, you create jobs and prosperity for the people all over China. And those nations who take this view, and China, India, Indonesia, other leading developing nations, Brazil, they all understand that by going green, we can create jobs and prosperity. That's that's the main role of government, to regulate markets, set our direction, have the vision of a much greener future, and then leave it to business to do the scale-up and, and innovations. Individuals can do a lot. Uh, let me give some suggestions. I mean, most people in the world are on the internet, they are on social media, they speak to friends. They can all everywhere use the influence to influence other people to go green. Put out a good example. If you see a neighbor doing something well, or if you hear about some good developments in, in your nation or globally, put it out, inspire others to do it. Everyone can plant trees. Uh, the chief minister of the Indian state of Madhya Pradesh is planting one tree every single day. 
to inspire the 80 million people in the state to go green and plant trees. But of course, every individual can plant trees in the neighborhood, in the village. Then demand solar panels. If you are university students, tell the leadership of the university that you can put solar panels on the, on the roof. And to that, you inspire people to do more on solar. Finally, we can avoid using all the plastics. I mean, we can all drink from a normal cup like this. Why do we need all these plastic items, which we just mm-hmm. throw away and which is polluting our nature? And of course, everyone understands that every one individual cannot change the entire world. But by setting the example, avoiding plastic, planting trees, demanding solar panels, speaking on social media, every individual can be part of this green, great green transformation of the 21st century. It's interesting that, Eric, you mentioned planting trees, because I know you understand China very much, and we've been communicating on China's WeChat, right? I'm wondering if you have Alipay. That... Uh, I don't I don't have Alipay, but of course, uh, uh, I use it a lot. China is now the world leader on, uh, on digital payment, but in, in Northern Europe, we mainly use cards. But yes. uh, the two places in the world where cash is uh, abolished, as one is China and the other is Northern Europe. Yeah, the thing about Alipay for me, you know, I'm an active user of Alipay, but not so much on payments. Mm. Actually, it's, um, you know, collecting green energy, you know, this uh, online green energy and planting trees, because I think Ant Forest has been doing good in greening China, this whole campaign. When I was visiting in the Mongolia, I did see a forest that was all planted by Alipay, Ali Forest. No, absolutely. This is a good example of how business like Ants Financial can lead uh, green development and, of course, mobilizing people to do the same. And you can plant a tree, in my case, an uh, Eric tree. <laughs> you can put, and we get a, a little note on that in, in, in the Mongolia. I can even go and visit my tree if I want to travel that, that much. So th- this is great. But, of course, China is now the lead tree planter in the world. Uh, NASA, the American um, Space Agency, uh, just said that the greening of the world is led by China because no other nation has done as much tree planting. And this is due to these kind of initiatives, but also due to, uh, say, in Siam Ba, in Hebei province, where three generations of Chinese have planted tree in very, very dry, very, very cold circumstances and created some magnificent forests. Or in the Mongolia and Kobuchi Desert, which has been green. I think Kobuchi is the number one example in the world of how to green a desert. It's, I think it's the 10th biggest desert in, in China. And it's now fantastically green. In the past, people were planting trees one by one. Now they're planting them also by drones in a more f- efficient way. And you have created a numerous jobs and prosperity for the people of Kobuchi by planting trees. So indeed, tree planting by governments, by people, by business is very important. Yes, Eric, it's it's just it's so inspiring to hear so many stories on planting trees and reducing the usage of fossil fuels. But um, you know, there are actually there are some voices. Some are doubting if there is actually climate change. And also there are some people they are arguing maybe climate change is not that urgent for us to take actions now. And why I'm saying that, because some scientists they argue, I think there are some Nobel laureates included in the scientists. They argue that there is no climate emergency that justifies eliminating fossil fuels usage by 2050. They're citing a lack of trends in weather extremes beyond natural variability 
claiming there's no definitive data showing weather is getting worse or storms are getting more intense. So what are your thoughts on this? What messages do you want to convey to them? First of all, there seems to be a very, very broad scientific consensus of scientists from Asia, Europe, everywhere that climate change is real and, and that we need to act. And added, it's not a painful transition. Uh, it's a transition which is full of hope. If you move from coal to solar, it's not just good for reducing climate change, but it's very, very good for people's health. I mean, China has reduced pollution in the big cities dramatically in the last decade. That is fantastic news for the people of China because you breathe better, you can go exercising, when you do your mor morning uh, morning yoga, whatever it is, uh, you, you ha have enormous benefit from this change. And even the new engines we, we make is much better. I have never met, ever met a person who had a fossil fuel car and switched to the electric. They said, oh, I want to go back because the electric car is much better. It um, accelerates faster. You can keep the temperature better. It's much less noise and it's much more powerful engine and a much more beautiful car. So no one wants to go back. So it's not like changing from the fossil fuel economy into the green economy. It's a lot of pain. It's a lot of fun. But we environmentalists also need to take this challenge and create a global movement for the environment, which is for everyone. Sometimes people speak as if environment is just for young and trendy people in the cities. No, in the context of China, let's make an environment movement, which is as much for the farmer in Henan or the coal worker in Shanxi or the nurse in Guangxi as for the young and trendy in Shenzhen or Guangzhou. If you make the environment movement just for the young and trendy, you will fail. It's for everyone, and it's a movement which everyone will benefit from. I mean, basically, everyone in China benefited from the uplifting of China from poverty into prosperity, and basically, everyone will also benefit from the green transformation. That was Eric Solheim, former UN Environment Executive Director and Under Secretary General of the United Nations. Wildfires, heat waves. The era of global boiling has arrived. Climate change is real, and it demands real action. Subscribe to our new podcast, Climate Watch, a podcast that records the impacts of climate change, shares insights from experts and activists, and seeks solutions and innovations. Join Climate Watch on a journey to save our planet on your favorite podcast platform. Together. We can make a difference. Now let's follow Jiang Tao for the latest climate developments around the world. The world's first fourth-generation nuclear power plant, China's Shidaowan high-temperature gas-cooled reactor nuclear power plant, has officially gone into commercial operation. Cyclone Mitran has killed at least 27 people in India. Iran has called on the Caspian Sea's littoral states to demonstrate a collective determination to halt the decline in the water level of the world's largest lake. Data shows the Caspian Sea's water level had decreased by 26 centimeters during the 12-month period to this March, and by nearly 2 meters since 1996. A report says the number of Israeli startup companies that focus on climate has increased by 13% so far this year. 
Germany has seen the share of electricity generated from renewable energies in the third quarter of this year rose to 60 percent, significantly up from 44 percent a year ago. Germany is seeking to cover 80 percent of its electricity demand with renewables by 2030. A report says factory farming is contributing at least 11 percent to global greenhouse gas emissions, escalating climate disasters like heat waves, cyclones, droughts and flooding. The report finds that factory farms in the global north are responsible for 9 billion US dollars worth of damage linked to climate disasters in Africa, Asia and Latin America. A poll shows why most children and young people have heard of climate change. Only half of them understand what it is. That's all we have for this edition of Climate Watch. To listen to this episode again and to catch up on our previous episodes, you can search Climate Watch on major podcast platforms or visit our website, radio.cgtn.com. You can also contact us via email. Radio at cgtn.com. Climate Watch is a weekly podcast brought to you by CGTN Radio. I'm Gao Junyang. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.